Good evening, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. With me tonight is regular panelist Bruce Garrick. Yeah, hello gamers! I'm also pleased to welcome tonight's guests, Quarter to Three's Tom Chick and EA2D's Soren Johnson, lead designer of Dragon Age Legends. Tom, Soren, welcome back to the show. I, I just want to say, before we start, that whatever Bruce Garrick is going to say, I disagree. I'm not surprised. <laughs> All right. Excellent. Here we go. All right, so tonight we're going to be talking about some conversations that got started at GDC last week. And uh, in particular, we'll be discussing some of what came out of Tom and Soren's GDC panel, Strategy Games, The Next Move. So I was not at the panel, but I did read some interesting summaries at, you know, after the fact. And one of the things I guess I'd like to start with is, um, Tom, you actually claim that strategy games are in the midst of a golden age. I, I, yeah, I'm incredibly giddy about uh, the state of, of the genre. Not games where you have a counter representing an SS Panzer division. That, uh-huh. the, the, the ship has sailed on that stuff. Got I'm, it. I'm talking about like strategy games in general. If you, if you open up the definition, I think we're in a platinum age. And, and my, my lead in for that was, you know, the, by the way, the, the panel wasn't just me and Soren. We also had John Schaefer, the lead designer of Civ 5. Uh, Dustin Browder, the lead designer of StarCraft II, and Ian Fisher, a long-term ensemble fellow who's doing Age of Empires Online. Oh, I um, you, had but... Ian Fl- you had Ian Fleming, I thought. You had Ian oh, Fleming. right. That's why, yeah. <laughs> He's dead, Bruce, isn't he? Oh, I don't, know. I didn't, I don't um, know that stuff. Okay. That's a very uh, that's a very august panel that you had there. It, these these were downright, uh, these were luminaries, absolutely. Ian Fisher was the, the lead de- designer of Age of Mythology, for Pete's sake. Really? I mean, Holy cow. Yeah, he goes way back. Um, So in addition to the games that these guys have been doing, and including Soren, I mean, I think Civ 4 is, uh, that's the, what would you say, the the Mona Lisa of strategy gaming? I I don't know. Uh, But uh, in addition to the games these guys are making... I think that uh, there are there's a whole mess of, of mid-level developers as well who aren't necessarily doing big AAA, huge-budget games, um, but that are still doing yeoman's work and, and making fantastic games. And Soren, at one point, you sort of said you thought that mid-level was either hurting or, or wasn't a strong part of the process. Now, I want to come back to that in a second. But in addition to that, these AAA dudes, these mid-level dudes... I, I rattled off six games that I adore, each of which is was made and published by one dude alone. I mean, that's the classic garage developer model. One guy makes a game, he publishes it on his own. Uh, there are six fantastic games that I that I play, that I love, that I think all strategy gamers should should look at. So this broad range of titles says to me, you know, we have never had it this good, uh, and that that was my opening premise, basically. Now you realize that the Dominion series started like ten years ago. So, well, not only that, right? That that's actually a good one, but that's isn't that technically three dudes? Uh, it's two dudes, but yeah, yeah, good point. So yeah, so that's like a, well, there's also games like Bronze and Mountain Blade, Distant Worlds mm-hmm. uh, that are that are every bit as good, but they also worked with a publisher. When is Mountain ones Blade that I'm thinking a of. strategy game? You ride a horse. Come on, that's a strategy game. That's every bit as much. As, well, it, it, it kind of is. Uh, but if we're yeah. if we're going to define it as wow. a strategy game, though, then three moves ahead just changed a lot. Yeah, totally. Yeah, <laughs> I, I gotta I gotta agree with that. I can't I can't uh, back Mountain Blade. I mean, it, it may be a great game. I've never played it. I'm not criticizing the game. I'm just saying it. That, I, I, everything I understand it. about it. 
not a strategy game. It, it has a lot of strategic elements, though. I mean, like, a big part of it is managing your, your mercenary force and your household guard and, you know, mm-hmm. doing stuff like that. And then there's kind of a mini war game thing. It's like a better Dynasty Warriors in a lot of ways. All right, that's fine. So what, what, uh, them, I, I'm dying to hear what these uh, these six games that changed the universe are. Ah, yes. Well, the six one-man games, that's the thing, is each of them was made by one dude Okay. Uh, and, and published by that one dude mm-hmm. uh, are AI War by Chris Park, uh, right. Ancient Trader, which is a, a game that I think is, is a strategy game with some of the best production values you see in a strategy game. That's it's a, very a really simple... cool map, right? The one that you, yep. that you on Fidget, you had made a, a, a very interesting post about the, how great the map was. Okay. Exactly. It, it's not, yeah, it's uh, it's got this sort of Terry Gilliam vibe to it. Uh very simple gameplay, but um, it, it looks gorgeous. Um, another one that has amazing production values is a game called Adam Zombie Smasher. The fellow's name is uh, Brendan Chung. Um, there's a game called Creeper World by a fellow named Virgil Wall, which basically uh, pits a logistics, a, a little supply network against fluid dynamics. It's yes, an RTS. go on. Uh, what, you don't like Creeper World? No, I love logistics. You said the magic word. Ah, well, I say logistics, maybe more like supply networks. Like yes. you have to build a kind of a tinker toy supply network. That's your faction, and the faction you're fighting is literally liquid dynamics. It's Creeper, but you've got elevation, and, and you've got sources where this Creeper pours out, and you've got to fight the flood back. There's, there's almost something biblical about it, uh, dividing the waters to, to make the land. Um, okay. So Creeper World, made by one dude. It is but ugly, but it's, a, it's an amazing uh, bit of design work. Uh, of course, Gratuitous Space Battles, which I think we all know. It's Cliff Harris's game. Right. Uh, and then finally, Solium Inferno. Yes, which I was Vic waiting Davis for made. that to, yeah. I thought you now, were going to skip it, and I was going to be very well, now, 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 Soren actually brought up Armageddon Empires instead, because that's, I think, a better example of a, of a single-player game. Um, Soren, you mentioned that. Solium Inferno kind of requires uh, multiplayer to really experience what it has to offer. That's it's kind of like a board game you play over the computer. Yeah, to me, Solium Infernum kind of falls in this tough position where it it really is on the wrong format right now. It really should be on something that's, you know, has kind of guaranteed connectivity, you know, whether it's like an iPad yeah. game or it's a web game where, you know, there's no uh, there's no busy work to do if, for sending around the save. You know, right now, it, it definitely does require that you that you gather together some friends who all agree to play it. Like it, it, right. it definitely doesn't plug into any of the cool social stuff that other games do. Yeah, right. Um, well, it's about the devil too. So I mean, it's kind of. I'm really sure the ba- the Bible Belt, yeah, doesn't want any part of that stuff. Well, it's not going to be on AOL anytime soon. Do you still have it? <laughs> well, you know, I was on um, Gamers with Jobs, you know, earlier this week, and I don't think the show's gone up yet. Though it will by the time you're listening to this. Uh, but, you know, one of the things that, uh, you know, I heard from the guys there is that one of the things coming out of GDC was that the indies are doing very well uh, and the big guys are doing very well. A lot of the concern is directed at sort of the middle market game. Yeah, this this came up a lot. Uh, this was actually a big part of uh, Cliff Blazinski gave a talk and he um, emphasized this point a lot, too. And it's it's something I've, I've actually been I've sort of brought up over the last few years, just how how much that middle has disappeared. I think it happened faster uh, in the strategy game, um, in in the strategy genre than maybe in some other genres. But yeah, like really, to me, there's two mid-tier uh, strategy developers right now, uh, and that's Stardock and Paradox. Um, and 
you know, maybe you could stretch the definition somehow to include some other groups. But for the most part, yeah, I mean, basically you have, you know, a few, you know, sort of old franchises that are still lumbering along, you know, your Starcrafts, your Total Wars, your, your Civ. And then you have all these kind of interesting tiny projects, which are, you know, all one, two, three person uh, games. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's tough to be somewhere in the middle. Um, I mean, EA has is right now going through a, a phase where they're you know they're actively saying that they're trying to go forward with a smaller title slate. You know, they want to make fewer games that that hit bigger um, because you know even though the market's growing, um, although I guess some people might say the market is actually not growing right now for for console games, but um, the the number of the number of games that sell beyond X million units, which is kind of what you need to do now to make a profit, is not really growing. So it kind of encourages publishers to double down on everything. You know, if if they're going to if they're going to release release a shooter, they might as well make sure it's you know it's the best shooter on the market. Otherwise, they might not they better not even try. Um, and I think with strategy games, you know, unless you're talking about sort of a legacy franchise, it's really hard to make that case for anything. Well, but Soren, what about like you mentioned Paradox and and Stardock, and those are both great examples, and they're also they're also publishers, but right. there's still I think a lot of mid-level developers that work with other publishers, such as Gas Powered and, and Petroglyph. Uh, I can think of several companies like that that to me, and I don't have the perspective on it that you have, but to me that seems to say you know what we do have this healthy middle level. Um, you know, those are guys plugging away, making different games, making some very good games. And as far as I know, they're in no danger of going under anytime soon. Uh, do, do you really think that that sort of mid-level is in danger? Um, I mean, I, I do. I mean, I don't know necessarily how uh, some, you know, a place like Gas Powered stays in business per se. Um, I mean, it doesn't... <sighs> I mean, I'm not. I'm not sure what's what's the right way to, to tackle this. I mean, I, I think that there is a way forward for mid-tier uh, companies, and I think that uh, really the right pattern is is the pattern that's followed by Riot Games. You know, where they find a way to get out of the whole retail trap, right? Um, and so most of the most interesting companies that that come forward right now that you know are not small, you know, three or four person teams are ones that find a way to deliver the content, you know, through the web, uh, through iOS devices, um, you know, maybe, uh, you know, live arcade, stuff like that. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, uh, you know, there, yeah, there, I mean, there's a couple of these older develop. you know, Relic obviously is another good example. I mean, there's a couple of these, these guys still kind of lurking around, but I, I think these guys have really, are really in a tough position. I mean, we well, you know it's interesting that, that you mentioned gas powered because they are, of course, taking over for Age of Empires Online, right. which seems like it's very much in the same vein as League of Legends, as what Riot Games is doing with with League of Legends. So I guess that's one thing that these mid level developers are doing. Yeah, is they're they're jumping onto to that model or wherever they can. Yeah, and I know I know that Relic uh, spent a lot of time experimenting with uh, Company of Heroes Online. Which strangely enough got shut down. I, so, right. I'm not quite sure what happened there, but um, obviously they're they're aware of what that problem is. Um, I mean, honestly, it's it, it it's still tough to read the industry. You know, we're not like other industries where it's it's very clear how much every game is selling, right? You know, I mean, if I could if I could tell how much Dawn of War two and you know the various follow-ons have sold, then I would I'd be able to kind of you know have a good sense of whether 
Relic is in a good business right now or not. But I just, you know, I, I don't know that. Um, isn't right. that isn't that data? I thought wasn't NPD or whatever. Don't those numbers get published? Those are shot pretty much. No, they don't have enough raw data to make the NPDs as reliable as they used to be. And really they, interesting. They pre- yeah, they pretty much keep most of that most of that under wraps. Like you have to you have to pay a pretty expensive subscription to get that information. I mean, I think they release publicly like top ten console titles, and they'll give the the, the sales figures for the top five. But obviously, that doesn't include a lot of strategy games. Huh. Well, Thorne, would you agree with me? Like, from from my perspective, where I'm sitting here as a dude who just plays games, to to me, it looks fantastic. I, I mean, business uh, considerations aside, I'm getting this incredible spread of great games, ranging from these one-man projects to these great AAA titles, some of which are really popular, like StarCraft II, uh, some of which are, are, are not quite as popular. But as a guy who just sits here and consumes this stuff, it just looks fantastic to me. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think right now is a great time to be a strategy game consumer. Um, right. You know, as long as you're, you know, willing to look at all the different formats and kind of cherry pick. I mean, there's there's fantastic board games, uh, you know, available on, on the iOS devices. Um, a ton of good stuff on the web. Um you know, it, you know, lots of good stuff available through Steam. You know, games like uh, Greed Corporation, Swords and Soldiers. You know, Defcon stuff like that. Um, a lot of stuff I wish was on Steam. You know, things like Bronze. You know, um, and you know, I think that's you know, these are these are very viable business models. But you know, I think I think the hard part is, and you know, this kind of is why you hear a lot of this at the Game Developers Conference. You know, which is you know as much about you know, the life of a game developer as it is the life of, you know, a consumer, um, is that, you know, the trouble is, yeah, what if you're in a developer in one of these studios with, you know, 50, 60, 80 people, you know, your, your options are very narrow. I mean, this, this, in many case, in many ways is the story of, of Firaxis, right? I mean, I was, I was there for a number of years and, you know, essentially when I was there, we released, basically three types of games, uh, pirates games, railroad games, and civilization games, right? Which were all, you know, retreads of, of stuff that, you know, Sid had done in the past. Um, you know, he also made Sim Golf while I was there, which is kind of a, you know, an un- unusual project, but that too had a, you know, another sort of franchise title attached to it. Um, and while I was there, and I, I know also, you know, since I've left, you know, there, you know, there's a number of times they've wanted to do other projects, you know, something new, something original, um, and the numbers just don't add up, right? It's, it's, it's just impossible to make a case internally for, you know, how you can make, you know, this project that, you know, you can't, you can't really guarantee it's going to sell more than maybe a couple hundred thousand units, you know, like how is that the right path when, you know, we could just be making, uh, you know, making more Civ games. Um, and it, it's not even, a, right. you know, like in terms of, you know, we want to make the most money possible. It's, it's that, you know, if we do, if we try a couple of these things and fail, the company might collapse and all these people might lose their jobs. I mean, you don't have to look far around the industry to see that that's happened. That happens quite a bit. Um, and so what do you, what do you do if you're in that type of situation? Uh, I mean, so many times I've, I've heard people say, you know, about Sphraxis, you know, while, you know, you know, well, I couldn't talk about it directly, like, you know, why aren't they trying something new? Like why, you know, why, you know, you know, we've had enough of them making, you know, the same game over and over again. I mean, it's, it, they're at this point, you know, sort of a, a victim of the, you know the 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 current business climate. Well, but I mean, <clears throat> all those games that you know that uh, you mentioned, you know, the retreads, uh, 
I guess I guess your point is that just that a a, a studio like Firaxis that's a, that's greater than a certain size can't uh, you know can't justify uh, putting out a game that's not going to sell. But I mean that's exactly where the, the you know these middle market guys like uh, like Stardock and uh, and Paradox come. In. I have no idea how many games. I mean how many copies is like the every iteration of Europa Universalis sell? I would I would love to know that. Yeah, I, I know the answer to that. I know the answer. The answer to that is enough. <laughs> okay, because they're, they're still making them. I mean, they're, that's, right. they've well, found their niche. Well, they but, occupy right. it very comfortably, and but I, I, guess, I presume it's doing well for them. But I guess, I guess, like Soren, like Soren said, I mean, if you knew how many games these things, how many titles these things were selling, how many copies, and and Soren could say, well, look, you know, I bet you I could make this really cool game that you know ha- that incorporates all these ideas. Soren, I'm, I'm totally. Doing like a role-playing Soren Johnson here, so he's fucking <laughs> okay, off at any time. But I'm assuming that you're saying, you know, I have all these all these great ideas. Um, I could make this game. I could propose this game to, with a budget of X, and based on how many copies, you know, Europe Universalis sells, or based on how many copies, uh, you know, Galactic Civilization sells. I could or could not justify doing that with a, with X. Basically, you'd have to say I could do it with a team of. X people with this amount of cost, and and you know you could sort of scale yourself, and you could decide whether all the ideas that you had would fit in, you know, whether it would be feasible to do with you know whatever size team you were going to use. But no, without knowing those numbers, it's completely you know it's just it's just voodoo. Right. I, I mean, I think you can totally pull it off if you sort of you know if at the beginning of the project you you uh, commit to a fairly conservative sales model where you say okay. You know there, you know there are people who are still interested in these type of you know old school hardcore uh, strategy games, and you know we're pretty sure we can sell these two hundred thousand copies, right? So you can do the math of how much, you know how much you would get, you know through the retailer, you know into your into your coffers. So that gives you mm-hmm. X amount of budget, and that okay. means you know yeah you probably can't have fifty people on this project, but you can probably have twenty, you know. Okay. So you just you just plan accordingly because there is sort of this gap in the market. Where these type of games don't exist, so you don't necessarily have a ton of competition. Um, so it totally can be done, but it's just I think it's really hard. And the other thing is, when companies like like Fraxis grow to be a certain size, and I, you know I'm not trying to single out Fraxis. I think you know places like you know Relic are probably in the exact same situation. When they grow to be a, single, a, a certain size, um, you know they they can't really just pick and choose any specific size of a team. They have their team. Right, right. Like they're not just going to fire half their employees just so they can pursue a smaller scale project. Um, right. There, there's very few companies that are trying what Double Fine is trying, trying right now, where they're saying, okay, we're going to keep the same number of people, but instead of making one monolithic project, we're going to try to do four at the same time. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Because I think I think most companies are afraid of that type of, of the amount of just overhead and craziness that's involved with that. Um, I think that could be an interesting model. We'll see how that goes. But, but basically, I think the way it is, you know, Fraxis, if they if they have a hundred people, um, they're always pretty looking like, okay, we'll probably always just have two projects. So one of them has right. to have sixty, and one of them has to have forty, and that's kind of what we're stuck with. So I think, you know, it would be better if they could do the math the direction that you're suggesting. But I think they usually have to do the math the other way around. You know, we have right. this many well, people, so we need to make a project. We need to do a project that supports that many. 
I want to sorry, just, oh, just do a real quick question. Quick, oh, go ahead. Okay. Well, I just want to, because it relates to what Soren was saying, just right. a real quick shout out to Petroglyph, who I think is doing something like that. They do these smaller Xbox Live Arcade games. They've got their big, uh, it's some, I think it's like a free to play RTS thing going. Um, but Petroglyph has, has taken that kind of double fine model of we're going to do these smaller games along the way. So I'm sorry, get in there, Bruce. I just wanted so, to give them a shout out. Yeah, I just want to, my, my quick question to Soren was that, you know, if you do four projects, is that significantly Increase your overhead. I mean, is, is doing you know four projects with with a hundred people significantly more expensive than doing two projects with a hundred people? Well, the thing is, I think when you're uh, when you're a mid tier developer, for the most part, you know, even though you're technically working on two projects, you're almost always essentially working on one project. There's okay. the, the project that ships next, right? Right. Like you you try to find as many resources as you can for the other projects, but essentially you have everyone hands on deck. Like with with Civ Four, for example. Um, <clears throat> Pirates was shipping the Christmas before we shipped, right? Almost okay. every artist on the company was working on Pirates up until it shipped. I think we only had okay. like two or three artists on Civ 4 up to like literally like 12 months before we shipped, right? Okay. And that's not necessarily because um, that's the way we'd like it to be. It's just because that's that's where Pirate, Pirates was at, at at that time. And it was essentially, you know, starving resources from, from Civ 4. And so once Pirates ended, then all the all the artists sort of suddenly poured onto Civ Four, and then it was our turn to starve the next project, right? Got it's just, it. Okay, it makes sense. Yeah, it's just it's just hard to arrange these things. Um, yeah, That's, I mean, okay. I think there's something else. You know, I mean, here's the thing: the Paradox and Stardock are two very interesting companies because I think they they both. It looks like a model that can be followed, but I think they both have two kind of like. Um, uh, you know, aces up their sleeve or whatever that, that allow them to do things that other developers can't, right? Mm -hmm. In Paradox's okay. case, it's because they've essentially been making the same game for 15 years, right? right? They're using one engine. I mean, I'm sure the engine is improving, but they're, in many ways, their games are mods of their other games. <laughs> yes, right? right, exactly. Yes. And it, I, I'm sure they have a pretty strong sense of, of how many, you know, we don't know what it is, but they have probably a pretty strong sense of what each of their games is going to sell. So I think their their business model is probably almost more predictable than almost any other company out there in the industry, I would guess. You know, even even though you know it's on a small scale, you know they come out with with quite a few games, um, and you know the technology is fairly stable, and they know they know their fan base, and you know as long as they they keep delivering good content, they can probably do what they can uh, indefinitely. Um, I'd be curious to see how well the the Divine Wind or whatever does. Uh, you know, compared to their you know European titles, I mean, most of their their right. market, I think, is European, right? So sure. they have a kind of built-in audience for that. But so, what's uh, what's Stardock's ace in the hole? Well, uh, Brad Wardell? Uh, well, sort of. I mean, Stardock's ace in the hole is it's not just a games company; it gets right. significant revenues from the other side of the business. Um, which, I, I mean, I, I, I'm I'm not going to go out and say that like it subsidizes the games business, but it gives them stability, so they're not fearful, right? Like right. I think Brad has said publicly, you know, that if Elemental fails, uh, you know, from a business point of view, it's you know it's not the end of the world. They can they can keep going. Whereas other developers right. like could could just have gone out of business for what they've gone through the last six months or so. Um, right. You know, it gives them stability to to try these things and then also to commit to making things right with Elemental. And I think you know everyone's glad they they can do that, but most developers aren't in that position. Well, and they're also publisher developers. Right. Right. Which yeah. is probably the third ace up the sleeve, whereas yeah, it, Brad it, just doesn't have that freedom. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, there, 
there. Well, it's kind of funny because actually Fraxis does. I mean, Fraxis is owned by a publisher, right? But uh, it, it's more like uh, what's the right what's the right way to put this? I mean, it's they became public. I think Paradox and Stardock became publishers because they couldn't convince other publishers to you know put money into the type of games they wanted to make, right? Whereas Fraxis right. got bought by a publisher that has no interest in these types of things. They're they're Paradox and uh, Stardox are essentially publishers by necessity. Right. I, that makes that's that's a good point. Um, I I want to kind of I I don't want to take over here in terms of like where this is going, but I I, I was fascinated by the uh, the um, write up in Gamma Sutra about uh, the the panel that Tom moderated and, and sorry that you were a part of, uh, and and your comments, uh, which you said in which you said, and I will quote. That uh, game modern strategy games should become simpler and include transparent rules, making the games easier to understand for players of all skill levels. And I just wanted to say that that is a pet peeve of mine that I've been harping on for years. So uh, thank you for uh, signing up for the Garrick Doctrine, and uh, <laughs> you can uh, you know join the uh, join the um, the the army of of uh, theorists that we have working on the problem. Excellent. Uh, you are you are now working uh, with EA2D, and I assume that uh, EA2D uh, has games that are simpler and have more transparent rules. Uh, uh, do you have any yeah any 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 comments about that? Any thoughts about why you why you think that's the case? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I guess I'll say two things about this. The first is that uh, I mean, this has just been my experience, you know, from working on the Civilization series. Is that generally speaking. Every time we we obscure the rules, it makes you know it reduces the enjoyment of the experience. Um, it, 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 whereas the, on the other hand, every time we've made the rules more transparent, it made it more clear to people what's going on. Uh, people seem to enjoy the game more, and sometimes that's forced us to simplify the rules because you don't want to expose something that's too complicated, right? So I think that's sort of a, a side benefit, um, but. Yeah, I mean, I feel like, you know, if you give people a window into the game, you know, it's going to, you know, absorb by necessity improve the experience. I mean, a, a good example of that is the uh, diplomacy feedback that you get in Civ 4, right? That when you go in the diplomacy window, you get this this full breakdown of, you know, plus two because you guys are the same religion, and minus three because you attack them, and plus one because, you know, we're trading, we've been trading for years, uh, stuff like that. Um, we You know, we found that that, that significantly improved uh, people's enjoyment of the diplomacy system, because you know it wasn't it wasn't just this black box. Um, you know they had some uh, you know w w you know when they were in a situation where they wanted to change things, it was clear to them what the problem was, right? Right. Um, and I think this goes now that that's sort of an also sort of an AI question, but just in terms of games rules, it's very important that when people do well and especially when they do poorly, they understand why that is, so they feel like it was essentially their own fault instead of the game's fault, right? Like, I think that's, that's important. Um, and that's definitely something that I've, I've been trying to bring to Dragon Age Legends, like, which is, which is a little more of an RPG than a strategy game, but if you play the tactical combat, um, I've tried to take out things that are typically a little obscure in uh, role-playing games. You know, it plays out, you know, a bit like sort of a Final Fantasy game, where, you know, you have you have three characters on your side, and there's like five monsters on the other side, and you kind of take turns exchanging blows. Um, but instead of having, um, you know, just kind of like, a, 
you know, a big, a big health bar where the character is like 80, you know, 80 health points or whatever, uh, 80 hit points. Um, I'm, I'm going with a, a more, uh, a sort of a simpler Zelda hearts system, right? Where the character, you know, the monster literally has four hearts, you know, which can go down in decrements of a half heart, right? So essentially it has eight hit points, right? Um, but the nice thing about that is it's a nice chunky number, Right, people have a sense of like, oh, I'm going to hit it for. You know, when I hit for three, that means I'm, you know, I'm taking off one and a half hearts. And so when you're when you're making your choices about which skills to use and who to attack, as you mouse them over, like we'll literally show how many hearts are going to are going to be knocked off if you make this attack, right? So if you mouse over mouse over this character, you see that one heart is going to disappear. You mouse over this character, you see the two hearts is, is going to disappear. Um, and that's giving you a window into the fact that well, this character here he's weaker against melee units, and you're a melee unit, and so this is you know this is the uh, result of that. Um, so yeah, I mean that's that's sort of an example of, of the stuff that I'm working on now, how I'm trying to make things make things more transparent. I can't believe it's you a, ripped off sample. Zelda. He sampled. I'm sampling. That's right. I'm, re- I'm remixing. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I think I think the more games do that, the better, because like people have a grammar of games, and so you want to use that grammar, right? Well, but I think that I think that there's a there's a, there's sort of a counterpoint to to that, which is uh, sort of like the uh, uh, the problem that I've been that I've found, um, where I think that computers sort of allow us to test games and to uh to sort of uh find you find games flaws very quickly uh because people just so many people play it so many times and and, and an example for me is uh there's a wonderful wonderful board game that uh, you may or may not be familiar with i know tom is because i uh, played it with him at his place uh, one time when i uh went to visit and i think he likes it uh, it's called 1960 oh and, yeah uh, sure it's a good it's game a, yeah, it's a really good game. Here's the problem with that game. The problem with the game is that it's now online on this thing called Game Table Online that was uh, a subject of a more uh, uh, of a recent podcast. Sure. And I got uh hooked on playing the game. Now, unfortunately, <laughs> they don't have a they don't have a very big uh, uh sort of uh pool of players, so sometimes it takes a long time to find somebody and and more often than not I have been able to find a game when I wanted one. But uh when I did find, play the game, I started realizing that, you know, I was playing a lot of stereotyped strategies. I really kind of, you know, a lot of that game is the historical flavor that I sort of was losing because I could see very clearly which cards were good, which cards weren't good. Things would come up. I would immediately make decisions, you know, and 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 I think that's part of playing the, the fact that, you know, if I were to sit down with friends and play it over a weekend, you know, we might play the game, you know, three or four or five times. I can play three or four or five times in one evening, sure. you know, after, you know, whatever, before I go to sleep. And it's sort of, I think you start realizing how, you know, what, what cards need to be fixed and, and how the balance is off. And it becomes kind of routine. And that's the, that's the, the 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 sort of struggle I have I still really believe in 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 transparent rules and simple mechanics that you can really understand and see you know have the game but it, doesn't that make the for the designer doesn't that make his job a lot harder because now that game has to survive uh, because I mean War in the East I mean I'm playing that game I, I can't imagine that I'm going to play that game through to completion I can't imagine I'm going to play the first six months of that game more than one time so all it has to do is hold up for one playing right. And, you know, I can see mistakes that I make, and as long as the game kind of holds together and, and, and suspends disbelief, then great. You know, I, and, and it probably 
it's going to take me a year to get to that point. If I take a year of 1960, I'm going to find every single flaw in that game. I, I and, have to. And I want to respond to that. Yeah, I, yeah, I want to respond go. to that. Two things, Bruce. First of all, 1960, that's outdated. Uh, the it's been replaced by this game, uh, Labyrinth: War on Terror, 2001 to huh? Because it's a question mark. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, that like. That's an example, like board games do this, where they, they have these cool systems, like the rolls in Puerto Rico or whatever, right. and they kind of build on each other. So, right. so drop that 1960 thing, start playing Labyrinth. It, it adds, it, it's all about asymmetry, and not just okay. in the sense of asymmetrical warfare, but right. asymmetrical gameplay. Okay. So, that's the but, problem with the 1960, is it's, it's old and busted, the new hotness, Labyrinth, War on Terror, 2001 to, huh? Um, <laughs> okay. But the other thing, the more important thing that I want to bring up is I, I, I think strategy games need to kind of a, be more like other genres in that people need to understand that there is room for different kinds of games and not all of them need to support somebody playing through exhaustively over and over for a year. Uh -huh. Like some of these one-man games I talked about, Adam Zombie Smasher, it's a $10 game. You play through it maybe three, four, five times, and you can be done with it. I mean, I think there's room for that kind of short, and I don't say this uh, to denigrate it, but that sort of short, disposable experience. Okay. Uh, not every game has to be Civ Four, for instance, which, good Lord, I, I don't think I will ever have a computer that doesn't have that on the hard drive, what right. with mods and all the variations that come up when you just play a game. Right. Not everything has to be a Civ Four. Okay. Uh, well, well, don't you also... Prefer... It's room for kind of like I'm sorry. Go ahead, Rob. Well, I was just going to say, don't you also prefer kind of knowing when something is a little busted in the game as opposed to that sort of sneaking suspicion that something might be deeply wrong, but everything is so opaque that you're not quite sure. You can't quite nail it down. I I I much prefer it when I see when I know that a game has a weakness and I can decide how I respond to that, whether that breaks the game for me or whether I can work around it. But it's much harder for me to deal with a with a flawed game when I can't pin down the exact places where it is letting me down. Yeah, well, board games have a pretty long tradition of you know house rules, right? That right um, because I mean it's pretty tough. A game like 1960. You know, how many times do you think they were truly able to playtest that before they released it? Of course, right? of course. I mean, compared to, you know, nowadays, you know, with something like uh, with, with uh, Legends, you know, like right now, I get feedback every single day on how difficult this battle is, how difficult that battle is, you know, what skills players are using and, you know, uh, what what consumables they're using, what um, what they're building in their castle. You know, so, you know, I can immediately get sort of this real-time feedback on, you know, my balance choices. Where with something that's, that's a board game, I mean, they're... They're definitely still that 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 world where they have to you know kind of like take their best guess and and go with it and um, you know I think that when you yeah when you take those games and you put them online you know you're you're exposing them to an environment that they probably you know were not built to handle um, I think that's definitely true. Uh, so your point though is that you can you can design the game that you're talking about with in a in a in, in the current development environment you just. You're going to be able to play test it so often and right. so much that you're going to be able to balance it, and 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 you're uh, you're going to find those flaws before you release the game. So it's going to be a lot. Okay, yeah. make it more robust. Okay, uh, that's that's reasonable. Yeah. Well, how do you feel? I mean, with with Civ Four, I mean, you know, you try to do this as much as possible. Civ Four was not an online game, so we had to actually sort of curate, you know, a sort of a group of you know 100, 150 testers from our community mm -hmm. and find a way to get them the game, you know. 16, 16 months before we uh, released, um, so that took a lot of effort, but it's still possible, and it's a lot easier than doing the same thing for a board game. 
Yeah, sure. Uh, uh, I want to I want to bring up on the on the subject of like what things need to be fixed in games. You guys are talking about like gameplay mechanics, balance, tuning, that sort of thing. The thing that uh, that I, I sort of tentatively brought up during the panel, and I feel bad because John Schaefer was misquoted in a couple of places, and and I think his point was an important one, but. The, the area where I think a lot of games are, are broken, where things like this fall apart, and it bugs me in particular, is, uh, is in AI. Uh, in, in releasing a game as a single-player experience without a computer opponent that can realize that f- for, for players. Uh, so I, I sort of opened that to the table. John Schaefer uh, kindly spoke to it and pointed out, I think rightly, that for some games it's simply not a priority. Uh, because of the work that it takes into making a good AI for, for some games. Uh, Dustin Browder pointed out, uh, and he works at Blizzard, that for them it wasn't that much of a problem, uh, and that's partly because they do different kinds of games. Um, but I'm curious to hear from you guys. Like For me, that's even though I say I'm really giddy about the state of strategy games, that's one area where I just am constantly face-palming myself because I play these great games, that are well designed, that have great production values, and that just fall apart when I try to enjoy them as single player experiences. Well, I think I think the biggest, um, the most important work that's done on, on an AI for a game is not, I think, necessarily by the AI programmer. It's actually by the designer up front in right. choosing you know what challenges the AI is going to tackle. Um, because sometimes there's things which you know you know will be fun and interesting for the human, but are really way outside the scope of what an AI can handle. Um, and then there's the other side of it where you're very limited about, or you know you're very uh, conservative, and you say, okay, you know we're only going to try to implement mechanics that we know the AI is going to be able to reasonably handle. And I think you make that decision actually similar to what uh, Bruce was talking earlier about, where it's like, is is this game an experience? first and foremost, where, you know, I'm not really necessarily looking to play this multiple times, you know, or is this something that's, you know, akin to a sport, you know, or a hobby, something that is going to be a regular part of my time, a regular part of my life, you know, over a, over a long period of time. And uh, it's, it's fine to choose either path, but, you know, I think sometimes, you know, developers aren't um, cognizant of that. And, you know, they, they make something they hope can be played over and over again, but then they include mechanics that, you know, the AI is simply not going to be able to handle. Uh, it, Dawn of War Retribution, or Dawn of War 2, just in general, uh, I think is an interesting uh, approach to that. Traditionally, when you release an RTS, you need a multiplayer game, a skirmish game, and then a, a single-player campaign game. Uh, and what what Relic did with that is for this whole single-player campaign thing, they were like, well, screw this idea of playing it like a skirmish game. We're going to make it like an action RPG, almost like a corridor shooter where you move your party down the corridor. It activates a pocket of dudes. You fight them and you move to the next pocket. Um, so it, it, as a consequence, I think it really doesn't have much of a skirmish AI. It's got a terrible skirmish AI. And, and I almost wish that developers, when, when we're talking about RTSs, for example, wouldn't sit down and try to do this you know, single-player campaign skirmish multiplayer you know, it's okay to drop some of that, like uh, Sins of a Solar Empire. They don't do this whole uh, campaign storyline thing. Um, uh, so, so I think there's this. A lot of times, developers will chew off more than will bite off more than they can chew. Uh, right. Yeah. I mean, I, I think. I mean, I. I think they probably. Um, 
you know, because their game was a little different like that, they were able to, uh, well, at least at least make the decision that they weren't going to they weren't going to worry about the AI. Um, I mean, I, right. I think that uh, since they still had you know a skirmish mode, that kind of I could see how that could leave you you know not feeling so great. Um, but definitely in some other games. Like I think if design if dis, design, designers commit up front to making a game that's heavily asymmetrical, where you know your your opponent is you know you know, maybe it's you know maybe it's something where you don't even you, you're never even going to face a human opponent you know where it's uh, you know your opponent is is always going to be the environment um, then AI is um, you know it, it's much less important and it's not going to be because you can you can tune the game in so many other ways if you're right. not if you're not trying to have both sides play the same game. Like like AI War, Chris Park's game, or that that Creeper World game. I mean, the AI in Creeper World is physics. It's fluid dynamics. It's stuff comes pouring out, and you don't have to make it smart. It just behaves according to certain rules, and the game is built where that's what you're fighting. Yeah. Well, for me, where, where I really, where, what really bothers me is when it's a very long campaign game, uh, when when it's going to be one of those experiences that you know the odds of you playing it multiplayer. Um, are, are very low, like the the complete campaign in War in the East. Uh, I don't see, you know, two people doing that uh, very often or, you know, seeing it through. Uh, clearly, you know, the way to experience the full 224-turn campaign is probably by playing the AI. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I'm going to tell you, though, that uh, there is a hardcore community of people who are doing just that. Oh, yeah, there's, that all, there's always a hardcore community of, right. you know, people doing something, something crazy like that. I mean, people, a lot of people climb Mount Everest. Um... But, Not a lot, but okay. Well, yeah, but uh, so I mean, and, and again, the, you get the the total war games um, where you know the multi the, the multiplayer campaign has never has never really worked. Yeah, do people still, play those? It seems like kind of hard to believe. Um, I, you know, I, I tried to fiddle around with it for Napoleon, and the experience was just was just wretched. Um, and I have not found anyone to do that with with Shogun Two yet, uh, so I can't speak to that. But for the, for those games, I, I really need the AI there to present a worthy challenge because that's really how I'm going to be experiencing most of the game. With 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 skirmish AIs, um, you know, my interest in AI there is really in so insofar as like letting me practice early games. I want the AI to be able to challenge me early and upfront, and I, I kind of accept that the AI is not going to is probably not going to be able to go the distance with me. Um, and I think you see this a lot in multiplayer games where. You know, you skirmish with the AI, and once you've mastered like fending off its early rushes, um, you know it's just it's just a matter of waiting it out. It, it loses the ability to challenge you in the late game. And relic games do this. Uh, you know, I, I would say even Sins of a Solar Empire does this. I hate that you're accepting that, Rob. Don't 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 roll over, bitch about that. <laughs> yeah, but, this is this, this is hard. It's one of these things where you kind of like you know I don't, I'm not sure if this is ever going to be a solved problem. Um, because developing AI is just, it's just hard. I mean, it's, it's really hard and the payoff, and this is kind of what John was talking about in, in the, uh, the panel that the payoff is often just not there. Um, you know, you're right. not, it, it's unclear how many people are good enough at the game. How much, what percent of your fan base is good enough at, at the game that they're really, you know, running into this problem. Um, right. And I think that I, th- I, I totally agree. I, I really agree with, with, with John's point, which is that, 
Uh, and I think he he's been kind of been misquoted because I've seen people saying, well, you know, John Schaefer doesn't believe in you know in AI, which is clearly not what he said. I think he would love to have good AI, but it, from a you know from a financial standpoint, it doesn't make a lot of sense to put a whole bunch of money into AI that you could put into pretty much any other aspect of the game. Um, but I I, I kind of question about I mean people I think a lot people pl- obviously this is kind of uh, kind of facile thing to say, but people play games for different reasons, and I think there's a large part of the market that I don't even know if they notice the AI and all I have is anecdotal right. evidence. I mean, I just all anecdotal evidence. But no, but I suspect you're right. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 the only people that I see I watch play games and I, there was um there was a, a comment made it was a long time ago I can't remember it was on quarter to three it was either by Steve Bauman or Jeff Atwood and uh, the the um the the, the the gist of it was that people want a game to keep them sort of on the edge of failure, but they always want to succeed, and uh, that's when they sort of that's when they get satisfaction from the game. And uh, you know, I, I I sort of saw that happening with you know friends of mine that I would uh, watch play Warcraft uh, Warcraft three or some you know other similar uh, role playing game uh, role playing real time strategy game. Sorry about that. Uh, where uh, they were. Um, uh, pl- all they would do is play through the single-player campaign, and once they were done with that, they considered themselves to have finished the game. They didn't really play any skirmish. Uh, they definitely didn't play multiplayer. But what they liked about it was, you know, when they would talk about playing the game, they would talk about how the 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 uh, AI would, you know, have them feeling like they're almost about to lose the game, but then they would fix it somehow. And and they didn't. They hated losing scenarios. They wouldn't. They really wouldn't lose anything more than you know once before they kind of turned the computer off and went and did something else. Uh, the the way that to keep them playing was to was to give them this. Uh, uh, you know, feeling of having overcome some obstacle without outright failure, and um, I, I don't think that they would really notice whether the AI was good or or or, or what, because they weren't going to go through that challenge more than once, and they weren't really evaluating the AI. So, I I I, I agree that you know there's a small group of people who are going to play a game over and over and over, and they're going to complain that. Uh, you know, the the computer doesn't really you know hold up after they you know they develop some amazing strategy and uh i don't think you're not gonna you're not gonna make any more money selling to those people well it does come back to what soren was saying though about you you know some games are more conspicuous about it than others and i guess the the elephant in the room i'll go ahead and mention it now is uh civ 5 where when the ai does really stupid things right under your nose that anybody no matter how good or bad he or she is at the game is going to notice and it's a matter of the game you're designing, make sure you provide an AI that, that can handle that. Right. Um, and and that's, yeah. yeah. But, so, but again, it, I would say that's a game where you're probably going to be playing it by yourself. Once again, I mean, that's, you know, that's the other part of the issue is the, my, right. my quintessential Civ experience is me versus the AI. The AI. Right. right. And, and you and notice that it's doing idiotic things and you're like, huh, that's, you know, that's not providing a challenge to me because if I had been playing, I clearly wouldn't have done that idiotic thing. And I think that that sort of breaks the suspension of disbelief. Well, there's definitely an axiom that if if, if the AI is going to do something stupid, just make sure that the human doesn't see it doing something stupid, right? Like that's, <laughs> right. that's really, really important. Um, and that's the but, thing about, about RTSs is you've got fog of war. Like a lot yeah, of times you can't yeah, see totally. what the AI is doing, so you're none the wiser. Yeah, uh, you could probably it, tweak the visibility rules of some games and people would suddenly perceive <laughs> that the AI is better, you know? Oh my God, it's flanking me. <laughs> right, yeah. Well, <laughs> and then they've built like 15 transports that are empty in this yeah. lake. Right? Yeah. I mean, the thing is, like, 
it's definitely true that like the vast majority of people who play single uh, strategy games are playing it single player. And yeah, and for a lot of these people, you know, the AI is just is, is there essentially as a speed bump. You know, like hopefully right. it's one that's not you know doesn't look stupid. And uh, and yeah, it's it's very important that the player wins. I mean, like you know, nothing will drive people from a game like losing. You know, it's it's um, you know pleasurable frustration, right? Like that that's a lot of what what fun comes from. And like with the Civ games, there was uh, very often you know I would get comments about how the late game IA the late game AI was poor and the late game AI needed help. And it never really kind of bubbled up to the top of my task list because like, what's, what's the payoff there that I'm going to beat the human, right? right? Like, I mean, that's, that's not my goal. You know, I'm not, I'm not really, you know, trying to achieve that. Um, and the real, the real sad truth is there is, there is starting to become, I mean, fortunately I'm not working on some of these projects, so I can kind of talk about this directly, but there's starting to become kind of a solution for this problem for the hardcore, but they're not going to like the answer, which is that some of these games are starting to open their engines up to be modded, right? Like down yep. to the, the core game rules and the core AI, right? Um, you know, with Civ 4, you know, I did, I did you know, the best job I could to provide a good AI out of the box, but the AI made huge strides afterwards because people came along and improved the AI themselves and then shared it between each other and compared notes, and that allowed the, you know, Blake to make an even better AI, and that was something that was eventually incorporated into the expansions. Uh, and as I understand it, something very similar has happened within the uh, Supreme Commander 2 community, isn't that right? Well, not the community. Gas Powered Games actually right. hired a fellow named Sorian who who had been doing mods. Well, they're they're releasing official patches that upgrade. Yeah, well, that's, the AI. that's what I mean. The, that the the, uh, the person who eventually takes it as their onus to improve the AI comes from the community because uh, you know that it's been made available to them. And then yeah, and then computer uh, then the companies are are dumb not to adopt that for themselves. Um, because you know, oftentimes, I mean, it, it sounds crazy, but the fans can do things that the developers can't, literally cannot do. They cannot come up with a way to justify the cost. Well, you know, I mean, one th- one thing you can say about, uh, like, particularly RTS AIs is, you, you, I think you could say previously that, well, people are going to be playing, the, the people who are going to care about getting a challenge are probably going to be playing other human beings. Um, and, and what, what I've noticed, at least in my own habits, is that increasingly, I'm not playing against other human beings, I'm playing with other human beings against the AI. And so once again, the AI in these games is sort of bubbling to the surface. Um, Supreme Commander 2 is a great example where uh, right now I've been playing with a, a friend a lot, you know, doing comp stumps, and we're trying to find that sweet spot because, you know, the easy AI is just, is just too easy. It, it, you know, it, there's no challenge. And the, you know, the one step up is literally 10 times as good as we are if you look at the scores. Well, I think there's um, I think there's a huge <laughs> opportunity right now for someone to make a game a strategy game. And I, I I mean there are there are some examples of this, but make a strategy game that is purely co-op. It's meant to be played co-op because then you can make the two sides heavily asymmetrical. So you don't you don't necessarily have an AI problem on uh, on the computer side because you can just change their mechanics so that they're built in a way that the AI can handle them well. Right, right. That's a good point because I think a lot of a lot of players. I mean, uh, every time I I play with with friends, which is infrequently, but when we play online, it's almost invariably, it's co-op. Yeah. I mean, I'm playing League of Legends co-op for sure. God's sake. Yeah. yeah. People don't like to lose, you know. Yeah. And uh, co-op, and even better, you're winning together, you know, with your friends. Like, what's better than that, right? Well, and I think you run into the problem of, I mean, for me, chess, for example, is always a game of complete icy silence. 
you know, I'm playing, I can be playing with my best friend in the world. I'm like, oh, hey, you know, come over to my house. We'll, we'll play chess together. We're not playing together. You know what I mean? Like, you know, we, we talk less than we do if we don't see each other for three weeks. Uh, and, and the same thing happens in RTSs where the moment someone says, okay, let's play against each other, conversation dries up, unless you're playing Tom, in which case he's just going to talk constantly and lie. <laughs> Uh, but that's that's um, that, normal. In my defense, that was a game of ruse where they they want you to build in this little psychological. That's stuff. every game, Tom. That's every <laughs> game. I would say though, Rob. I mean, because I do be built for Tom. Oh, I love me some ruse. Uh, bad AI though. Uh, I will say though, Rob. Uh, one of the like I have a, a weekly land gathering, and when we play strategy games, that's absolutely true. Everybody's nose is in the computer. Nobody's saying anything to anyone else. You can even get a little grim about it. But the moment the game is over, there is this burst of incredibly gratifying social interaction during the debriefing. Yeah, but that, that's the magic of the land though, too. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. Yeah, you, you can't quite get that in the little chat stuff at the end of a League of Legends match, you know, in that little chat lobby that you're dropped into. But I, well, I wanted clearly, to go back to... Clearly there's enough money, though, now for a, for a, a co-op five-player uh, LAN-only game, because then it can take advantage of all that uh, social interaction. I mean, that's, very, that's a, very, uh, um, a very small market that I don't think can be re- replicated except in your, in your living room. Sorry, Rob, I, I cut you off. Oh, no problem. I just, I just wanted to go back to uh, Tom's righteous indignation about AI failures because I think, you know, certainly I, I, I've come to accept it, and I, I think part of it is I've just I've become a bit worn down by the topic. You know, to an extent, I'm tired of beating the crap out of games for a, a problem that crops up over and over again, and at this point, it just seems like nobody's even trying. Uh, and so now it's like, well, I guess I guess I have to look at the multiplayer component, you know, harder because clearly that's where the emphasis lies. Well, I disagree, though, that nobody's even trying because, like we're seeing with uh, with Supreme Commander Two, with, uh, with with as happened with Civ Four, I think that the AI in StarCraft Two is is admirable. It uses all the tools the developers have built into the game, and I love that about StarCraft Two. Um, it, it's it's scalable. It's brutally scalable. You can make it as difficult or as, as easy as you want. Um, I. I You know, you say nobody's doing it, but I think the people who are doing it right are making everybody else look really bad. And I think we need to point out when everybody else looks really bad. I hate that that Creative Assembly wasn't taken to task more for the the state of their last few games. Can you you mod Um, the AI in their games? No, they're, no. They're, they're pretty traditionally closed with their... Yeah, I think they're, I think they're missing a huge opportunity because I think there would be so many people who would love to get in there and fix that. One, one of the interesting things they did, though, is with their campaign mode was if you play single player, you can leave your game basically open to multiplayer so that when you jump into a battle... Uh, another human is there. Like, you have a lobby of people waiting to jump into people's single yeah, player but, battles. Yeah, but let me tell you why that doesn't work at all. Well, because nobody used it. <laughs> well, that, that's part of it. Although in, in Napoleon, actually, a few months ago, I, I found a few drop-ins doing that, so that was pretty cool. I had some great battles in Napoleon doing that, yeah. But um, why, so why do you think it doesn't work, Rob? Well, because the entire game is tuned for their crap AI. The entire game is built around the idea that the, the player is going to win every single battle, uh, or at least most every battle, you know, using these set tactics and... You're, you know, you're going to feel like Alexander the Great because, oh my god, you just overcame three-to-one odds <laughs> yet again. Um, you're, you're the best general in all of feudal Japan or, you know, the, uh, medieval Europe. The moment you have someone else taking the seat there, 
um, suddenly you're not winning those battles or you're not winning them as you know overwhelmingly as you were before. But then right. you go back to a strategy game that is kind of assuming you're doing better than that. And so the moment the moment you let another human being in there to play to take the AI seat in a battle, um, you're ruining your strategy game. Well, that, and that that I think that's something that I've railed against before is that I think their whole philosophy towards the split design, this turn based strategy game, and the real time thing. I, I've I've always thought that that was not a very smart decision. Uh, let's let's talk about my what I think of the future of strategy gaming is. Uh, and that's League of Legends. So, Bruce, you're playing this now. Oh, is it... I'm playing it. I I am playing it like you wouldn't believe. Wow. And I am now, you... very competitive. I am <laughs> able you... to defeat many of the tutorial uh, battles. <laughs> many, many. <laughs> now, do you understand it okay? Because it's real time. You know, it's not a turn-based game. Right. How's that working out for you? Well, I mean, I, I, the way I've been playing it is that we kind of get an order and then we all click and then we all click again in order so we each get a click right and then so sometimes sometimes a lot of the other players though they click a lot and i think that they're not really playing the spirit of the game because that ends up with my guy getting killed but by the way and and once again i I never want to miss an opportunity to say something nice about riot games they're currently working on a a tuned ai for for co-op play that takes a handful of their their champions and Specifically, is the AI is built around those champions' abilities. Uh, right now, they have bots that are very sort of perfunctory. They they do the basics, but those guys are specifically working on an AI that that takes advantage of the tools in the game design. Yeah. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to seeing how that turns out. Yeah. No, I'm I'm really I really like that game. I mean, I I really like that game, and uh, I I have to say that I I'm not so sure I understand the historical basis for it. I don't know why those guys would be running up and down those lanes. I think that there's going to be more explanation of that and sort of investigation of whether that really happened or not. But uh, but I, I, I really love the fact that there are, you know, three lanes and five guys and you sort of have to allocate your resources and uh, the way that all the, uh, you know, the standard stuff, the way all the, the abilities play. I, I really don't understand sometimes why... I'm losing, and the guy that is playing the same hero that I'm playing is not losing. Uh, and that's to... one thing. I mean, they're so good. You know, we talk about transparency. Those right. guys put all their numbers in there. I mean, that stuff is, is in there. Like, yes. that, that game is so clear with the numbers in a way yes. that you rarely see in, in an RTS like that. Yeah, like, and it uh... gives you lots of good information after the match, or even during the match when you're killed. You know, it'll give you information about why... You know where, where I all love the damage that came cap, from, yeah. and like yeah. you know what what the bonuses they were. That, oh yeah, that them, and, that and, and they have tips. They have tips that like it says. You know, this guy used this ability on you. You should have used your like block that ability ability. I mean, it, it comes up in the in the death screen. I think that's fantastic. There's a lot of stuff in that in that game that's great. And in a couple days, I'll be glad that I don't have to play it at 640 by 480 resolution. Ah, the new computer. Congratulations. Yeah, uh, something that they're doing too that I, I want to bring up, and and there's. There's maybe a little bit of a mea culpa in this, but uh, the the guys at League of Legends, uh, like StarCraft II, they have a very esports approach to what they're doing. And, and one of the reasons I was critical of StarCraft II, and, and not that critical, I love StarCraft II, but I wrote a, 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 a review that sort of issued its esports uh, mandate as a kind of a caution, like you, you should be careful um, – jumping into this game because it, it, it's very meticulous. It's very much geared towards higher-end players. But 
StarCraft II and League of Legends are, are really good at taking that esports approach, but being very welcoming and very accessible to people like Bruce, who would normally have no idea what they're doing in that kind of game. Yeah, well, the, there's a, there's a there's a phrase that kind of goes around about how this this plays out. And basically, the idea is that Blizzard adopts a depth-first approach when they design the game. That they're they're not afraid to you know um, you know reward reward people who. They're going to find a path in their game for people to get really, really good. So that the, the great StarCraft players, great League of Legends players are going to wipe the floor with everyone else, right? And they feel like it's important to get to that point. And then after that, then they spend all their effort trying to teach everyone how to get to there. Whereas a lot of right. the games, if they start with accessibility first, they never build that core game. So that core, they never get that core depth into the game so that, you know, eventually you're just going to, you know, you're going to lose interest because it doesn't reward skill. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, uh, but our, I mean, that just sounds like a bad game that doesn't reward skill. It's, it's... Yeah, to, to some extent, that's, yeah, that's true. A... Right. I mean, yeah, I agree. I mean, I think it's true of, of most, most good RTSs, is they do have these long learning curves, and you can get good, and your skill will be rewarded. It's just that that's such an important part so early on with League of Legends, with StarCraft II. It's, it's such an integral part of the design. Yeah. Uh, you know, League of Legends 2 is almost like an action game. You know, you know, it's up to you. You can't just give your guy an attack move. You've got to be paying attention to him the whole time. And actually, the, the PR fella who's working for Riot Games, he used to work at Capcom. And when I was talking to him about the game, he said, and he claims this is his, but I can't believe no one else has thought of this. He, he says that League of Legends is the RTS equivalent of Street sure. Fighter, huh, okay. which which I, I, I love that comparison yeah. because, yeah, it's all about... You know, you can get in there and just make stuff happen and have a good time, but once you learn little moves and once you bring your reflexes into play, you know, once you embrace the micromanagement that's such a crucial part of their game design, uh, there's room for you to get really yeah, I mean, good there. League of Legends so. is a fascinating game for a number of reasons. Um, like, first of all, I think it, it, it shows that, that really RTSs have kind of, you know, to me, moved, moved beyond the capabilities of your average player. And League of Legends, uh, your average gamer. I mean, League of Legends is so much easier to play because you're only focusing on one thing, right? Attention is not this, this crucial resource. And, you know, the sad truth is, like, there's only so many gamers who are ready for that type of an experience where, you know, attention is a crucial resource. So, you know, getting League of Legends, you know, you're focusing on one character, you're in this nice strategic environment where you know, you know that the lanes matter and knocking down the towers matter and you know, you know you need to be grouped up with with other guys and it's important to take down the enemy's heroes, but you know, you're not you're not kind of pulled in 10 directions all at once. Um, you know, that is what has worked out really well. Um, and the other thing that's interesting about the, the the League of Legends is that they've done such a good job of bringing Dota. It, this is based on an old Warcraft three mod called Defense of the Ancients, which is hugely popular, uh, played by millions of people, and it's a notoriously uh, punishing game. It's notorious for having one of the worst uh, communities um, for any game anywhere, and that's a d direct result of that game's design. Uh, of Dota's design, which is that it's a game that has uh, friendly fire, it gives extreme penalties for dying, that uh, when you're killed by other heroes, that's essentially the best, that's essentially how they level up. So if you if you jump into a game of Dota and um, you're not playing very well, your teammates will harangue you and just tell you, do not do anything, just stay in the base and stay alive, 
right? That's all they want you to do. Um, because those type of games are often determined not by who does the best, but by who does the worst, which team has the worst player, because the other side is essentially going to feast off of that player. And so League of Legends have, has, have directly attacked a lot of these design issues, which has led to them having a much, much nicer player base than you'll find in, in Dota. Although um, Tom claims that it's one of the most uh, punishing player bases that... Uh... Uh, communities in, in uh, both on quarter to three, I think, and Tom, and you're and um, you're talking about communities. Uh, right. Well, it's you. it's all it's all relative. <laughs> That's the best <laughs> way I can put it. Yeah, I've never I've never played Dota, and it sounds like it, you it, make it sound like it Lord is. Flies, I mean, the sorry. Dota community <laughs> is notoriously just. The, I mean, I, I think it's known essentially as having the worst community of any game ever anywhere. Um, and it's it's you can see how it's a direct result of the way the gameplay works. I mean, League of Legends is always going to have that to some extent because there is still this like, you know, you know, it's it's almost like basketball, right? And if you're forced to take on a player who's terrible, like it's going to lead to, um, you know, some right. some not so great comments. Um, the other thing that to me is interesting about League of Legends is uh, the business model because they've really thrived as a free-to-play microtransaction-based game, which to me has always been a tricky one to integrate with a strategy game, right? Um, clearly, you know, when you talk about microtransactions and strategy games, it, it brings up all these terrible images of like you're actually going to buy your tanks, you know, like you, know, right. you want to spend money to build more units or uh, to access, you know, to access other units that are available farther down on the tree or or whatever. And it's been kind of hard to see how those things are two things are going to fit together. Um, League of Legends doesn't doesn't even sell in-game bonuses. All it sells are cosmetic item skins, you know, you know, new sort of clothes for your character, um, and access to characters. You know, the game has, uh, you know, essentially 50 characters or so, right? And at any time, you can access well, seven or eight of them, right? Each, each week, week, each each week, and they rotate. So what happens is essentially you get good at one character, and then that character pops off the uh, the free week, and now you you know, if you want to keep playing that character, you're gonna have to spend a few bucks. Right. right. I just learned about that. That's a that's an insidiously effective <laughs> strategy. Although I, I have not uh, I have not fallen for it yet. I actually paid for it. But yeah, exactly. I started playing the game my first week. I learned a uh, character that I thought was you know I was kind of getting the hang of, and then all of a sudden I log on today and it's gone. Right. And and, uh, yeah. and and here's the thing. I would say that however insidious that is, that is actually a pretty fair business model. Right. I agree. You know, I oh mean, yeah, compare, no, it's absolutely yeah. fair. There's, there's yeah. nothing unfair yeah. about it. I just it's it's uh, you know it's it's, smart. It's, it yeah, it hurts. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, they also Soren, they they do they let you earn as you're playing. Right. You earn yep. a, a type of resource called IP, right. which is inspiration. I don't know what it stands <laughs> for, but you earn that, and you can buy if you want to just grind away at that game and play it long enough and play enough right. matches. You can eventually buy most of the stuff That's right. that they sell for real money. And in fact, true? you can you That's can buy. Yeah, yeah. That is true, right. Bruce. The only thing you cannot buy with the IP are the skins, right. which are the cosmetic things huh. that have no gameplay effect. They, yeah, that, been, you've got to lay out real money. Yeah, they've been quite restrained. I mean, in fact, there are bonuses that you can buy, little perks. Uh, what are they called? Ruins, is that right? And you can only buy that with the, the currency that you grind in the game. Like, as a, You can, literally cannot buy that with cash. And uh, that's pretty... That's pretty conservative because there are definitely plenty of companies which are not doing that, right? But I think that goes to their 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 idea of playing like as an esport because sure. they want it to be an, a level 
playing field and they want everyone to be equally competitive, right. you know, I, I think they're reluctant to, and I assume they're doing well enough making money other venues, they're reluctant to sort of sure. compromise their gameplay with this perception that yeah, if you per- pay money, you have per- an advantage. Perception is important, and it's good to be kind of in, on one of the two extremes, right? And I mean, it's the same reason that uh, Blizzard does not have real money transactions within within WoW, because there's a significant amount of their fan base that really does care about that stuff. Um, but that leaves a huge business opportunity for all the other games, which are, are going to just go ahead and say, okay, well, let's go for it. You know, let, let's let's have these things. Um, but, but here's the interesting thing to me about League of Legends, right? Because their business model fits their game design very, very well, but not every strategy game has 50 different types of game styles and choices, right? Like, what do you do with StarCraft? Could you sell StarCraft this way? Could you have, okay, everyone gets to play the Terrans for free, um, but you have to pay for the Zerg and Protoss. Um, probably that, that there's just not enough of a runway there to make a good business, right? Because you need you need a number of purchases. Um, Age of Empires Online is doing something a little like this, and they have it a little bit better because usually those games have 15 or 16 civilizations. And as I understand, it's something similar where, yeah, you can play the Egyptians or the Greeks for free, but if you want uh, the Romans or the Chinese or the Arabs or, or whatever, you're going to have to you're going to have to pay for it. Um, and I have some misgivings too about whether that's going to work. They're also making you, I believe, pay for the higher level units. And if you, as you're playing, you discover items that give you in-game bonuses, like like equipping stuff in an R- in an in an RPG, and you have to pay to be able to use right. those. Uh, so they they're not going to have that League of Legends perception of you know no money helps you you, you know money doesn't give you an in-game bonus. Money clearly ties into your your in-game power in Age of Empires Online. And I wonder how that's going to work. There's a long tradition of that, I would just point out. In uh, the old, and this is old, 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 but there's the pay by mail. They used to have uh, these uh, companies that uh, had. uh, (laughs) (laughs) Bruce, you're so quaint. You know what? Why do you go way back there? You just point to see. Magic yes, the Gathering, right. for instance, C- CCGs, and you're going to some play-by-mail. It's I said long history. You used to, they used to, used to be able to pay. The <laughs> Good more, point. Yeah, exactly. Fair anyway, enough. There we go. I used to pay for Tinker Toys that way. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, here's here's the tricky bit: is that will games like StarCraft, and by StarCraft I mean like you know a very a very limited set of units where there's three sides, each have 12 units. Will those games disappear because people are going to increasingly encourage to design games that fit this new business model? Like, is, is that what's going to happen? Or on the other hand, does the fact that so many people are going to be flocking towards this direction mean that there will be this um, new opportunity because there will be so few games that, that, that fit that, that are kind of pure design, right? Um, that are, are, are gameplay that's made without any any concerns for the business. Um, and I think there's there's essentially going to be a split. Like, you, you need to kind of decide up front which type of game you're trying to make. Agreed. And in a way, I, I kind of don't... Like, like Soren, you mentioned the, the problem for Axis Faced as far as, like, you know, do we want to make these same games? Do we want to make new games? And I don't want to sound like the a-hole here, but in a way, I couldn't care less that you guys were struggling with, with that because I know that even if you guys, well, I say you guys, even if Firaxis just keep mixing, making Civ games, other people will come along. You know, these one-man games that I'm talking about. If I want a sci-fi 4X game, I don't have to wait on Firaxis to make it and take any risks. I can just play Distant Worlds, you know, that Matrix publishes. Uh, so it's the same with this issue. If everybody flocks to this business model, you know what? They can have at it. Because I know there are going to be smaller groups that are... Uh, that's that's part of the beauty of strategy. Oh, games, I don't, right? I don't, I don't it, buy that it doesn't have the, world view. 
Well, it doesn't have the barrier for entry that some of the other genres do, like like shooters or, or RPGs, where people expect great production values, or it achieves them cheaply, like this Adam Zombie Smasher game or something. I mean, so, so Rob, you don't you think I'm being uh, I'm being too naive? Well, I, I think I mean. One of the things that always comes out of GDC, it seems like every year, is this is the fear that things that people love and have loved for a long time are going to go away. That the industry is going to evolve in ways they don't like. Like the sun? I mean, no. <laughs> I mean, I think no. I, I completely disagree. You know why? Well, go ahead and explain okay, it, Rob. Ahead. Wait, All I want right, to hear. I want to hear. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So I mean, to to use the to use the Firaxis example. Okay. Yeah. Distant Worlds came out. Uh, Distant Worlds isn't even trying to do remotely what Alpha Centauri tried to do. Um, Alpha Centauri is a special game. It remains unique, and I think one of the reasons for that is because the studio that made it was never able to really go and make another one or expand more in that direction. Um, Gettysburg, I think, is, you know... Gettysburg is a game I look back on with, with some sadness because it, it is exactly what I want so often from an introductory war game, uh, something that hardcore grognards could enjoy, but something that someone who you know, isn't particularly committed to that genre, could also really appreciate. And we didn't get more of those. So, I mean... Well, you know what? You say that, Rob, but I disagree. I, I can't really... You, you say we didn't get another Gettysburg, but I know you guys have had on someone whose name I forget. Norb? Uh, Norb Timka? I, I know you guys have... Yeah, yeah, maybe. Like, like you, you, is that you, a, like yeah, a Yeah, we, we were talking about Scourge of War. But that's exactly my point, is that Scourge of War is, like, is exactly what Gettysburg would have been. Uh, if Gettysburg had decided, well, screw it, we're going to make a really hardcore real-time war game. Uh, it, you know, their, their subject matter is similar. Their method of control is superficially similar. But what they're trying to do is so different uh, that they end, up, they end up appealing to very different things. Well, I, think, well, I, I can't... I well, I just want to say I can't I can't speak to that particular Gettysburg thing, but but you bring up uh, Sid Meier's Alpha Centauri, and I'm sad that there was never another follow up to that. But but that's not entirely true because that that Dune Wars mod that I played for Civ Four I think is every bit as good as Alpha Centauri. And if no other company has come along and made a new Alpha Centauri, that's okay because I get that same fantastic 4x asymmetry and personality in, in Dune Wars. I, I mean, I, I do think that, you know, these games that, that you think are going to go away, something is going to fill that void. Uh, and maybe that's Panglossian of me. I, I love that you would use that. That We're real highfalutin, by the way, that you use that adjective. Um, but but I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure something is going to come along that's going to fulfill your Gettysburg, Jones. Well, I, I do sort of know what Rob's getting at in the sense that, so there's all these unfilled niches, right? I mean, I think we can all kind of agree with that, that, you know, the, the mid-tier, the, the top-tier uh, developers are not able to fill. And so they're being filled by these these teams of, like, one or two people. But, you know, when when you have one or two people making a game, you can end up with something that's highly idiosyncratic, highly off the deep end, highly just, like, you know, highly inaccessible, um, because they just don't have these constraints to, you know, keep things keeps things, uh, you know, constrained that, you know, a regular developer do, does. And sometimes it doesn't matter because these people are just highly talented and they do something really phenomenal or, you know, maybe, you know, you really don't want them to have any constraints. But, you know, I think a lot of times these people, you know, shoot themselves in the foot with their own freedom. But a lot of times they don't, though, is what I'm yeah, saying. Yeah. And that's why no, I'm so optimistic is that, you know, that that's why I wanted to lead off with these six awesome games made by one dude. Yeah. You know, if Firaxis can't do it, I don't care because somebody will. Yeah. And uh, and and I'm 
you know, what I've come to learn is there's there's awesome stuff that's not made by Firaxis. Yeah, yeah well, I, I, I agree. I think that there's that people play these games because that, I mean, there's so many people that love these games and, uh, uh, you know, are, are doing this to fill a lot of these designers are filling a need, filling their own need. Uh, you know that uh, you know there, there was no game like this, so I you know I just went and made one, and I think that that's always because of the nature of this being you know an entertainment business, and people want to be entertained and they can do it, uh, they will. So I I agree, I kind of agree with you guys. Yeah, I mean the best. So it's a two-two split. <laughs> well, I'm not quite sure what side I'm on. I mean, in a sense, the the best <laughs> games are often made by people who you know they're they're making a game that they just they want to see that they you know is not they they can't find a, this this game that they're they're just driven to make, and so that's. You know that that's really that's really phenomenal. I mean, I think for a lot of these very small scale developers, I, I'm kind of talking more about the advice I would give them if they were talking to me. Where it's that you know, keep in mind accessibility. Try to restrain right. yourself to some extent. The thing is that there's so many of them that for every great one that bubbles through, there's there's ten that just have gone off the deep end that you don't see. And it doesn't matter to us right. because we only need, you know, a good, you know, seven or eight great ones each year or whatever. Um, you know, we don't see the, you know, everything else that's going on. It, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter to some extent. You know, there's no, it's not a headline when these, these projects don't work out. Yeah, I only need one great game every couple of years, though. That keeps me going. <laughs> uh, well, we're nearing the end of our discussion. Uh, but before we share our closing thoughts, I'd like to remind listeners to review and rate us on iTunes. Uh, especially because we haven't had much new feedback since I took the helm. Uh, come on, guys. I know you have opinions. Tell the world how great 3MA is or how thoroughly I'm running it into the ground. Uh, either one is fine by me, really. Uh, but I can't evolve and change the show without you know some, some feedback. Um, as always, my thanks to our producer, Michael Hermes, and uh, to you for listening. Uh, gentlemen, any closing thoughts? Uh, Bruce. Uh, yes, um, I'm very interested in uh, some of these mods that Tom has uh, mentioned, uh, Dune Wars or Car Wars or whatever the heck, and um, the uh, other mod, uh, Labyrinth, uh, question mark, and the Minotaurs. Uh, <laughs> if you could just, if we could have links posted to these at the bottom of the podcast. Why do I even ask? There will be links to these at the bottom of the podcast. Excellent. Tom? Uh, my closing thoughts are I agree with disagree with everything Bruce said. He's wrong. Uh, I just want to throw that out there. Also, is uh, is 3MA, is that the official like shorthand? Uh, 3MA, Rob? Because yeah. that just rolled off your tongue like you'd been using that for a while. Uh, well, there's this thing on Twitter, Tom. Um, it, it's called Twitter, and we use it to sort of create trending topics. And so 3MA is sort of a convenient shorthand that those of us who are part of the modern Internet – uh, have started using. I'll have to. I'll have to look into buying this Twitter thing for for my own. Uh, you can. Home you computers. can. Uh, you know, I'll sell it to you. Uh, you should <laughs> just send send me a check you, after the show. I'll give you an address. It's, me, it's a monthly subscription. Yeah, microtransaction. Uh, also, I want to send out a thanks right before we did the strategy games panel. Uh, a fella came up, and his first name was David. I apologize for not remembering his last name. And he brought me a coffee. <laughs> he was like, he was, he was like, this is. I listened to three coffee. moves ahead. Yeah, exactly. He, he said, you know, I listened to three moves ahead, and you used to open with, can I get everyone a coffee? So I thought I would bring you a coffee. Wow, that's and, and so David, meta. That that was very meta, and the the timing was incredible because I had just gone to the speakers lounge, and the they had taken the coffee away, and I had to run to the uh -huh. panel, and I was sitting there having wanted a coffee, wow. and this fellow David comes up and is like, here's a coffee. So. Thanks, 3MA, yeah. and thanks, David. All right, I'll give Soren the last word here, but uh, first, uh, my closing thoughts uh, are directed to Tom, really. 
Uh, so and I disagree with them. So seventy-five for StarCraft Two. Tom Sells. Why so low? <laughs> Why so low? <laughs> What's wrong? Oh, haters, man! What are you gonna do about them? <laughs> All right, Soren. Uh, yeah, just you know, support your local independent strategy game developer. You know, I think that's that's really important. Um, you know, it's uh, I do think it's a little sad that uh, the indie game dev- community is really growing so qu- so much over the last uh, few years, and, there, and there's a lot of people who have really turned these thing turned it into a legitimate business for themselves. And uh, but I, somehow I still feel like uh, strategy indie strategy game developers are a little bit on the outside looking in. Um, and, you know, they, they, to some extent, they just don't fit the fit the mold that a lot of these other guys do, which, you know, are a little more on sort of the hipster side, perhaps. Um, and uh, strategy game developers have never quite been hip. It's <laughs> <laughs> uh, terrible. Well, no, I, I do remember from when, from when Chris Park was on the show that, you know, his description of the unbelievable trouble he had finding anyone to give a damn about AI war. Yeah, I was... Um, the I indie was, scene gave him no support, and that was kind of disappointing. Yeah, I was actually going to use that as an example. I mean, he he entered AI War in the IGF, and because it wasn't this you know kind of bite-sized platformer, you know, with with kooky music or whatever, um, you know, it, it it got no nominations. But it was clearly one of the most um, significant games submitted that year, and I thought that was that was a real shame. You know, there's there's not really, yeah, you know, I'm not sure if there's a place for strategy games in the IGF, which I think is is really kind of sad. Isn't that kind of the story of all the life story of anyone who's played a strategy game? We we rarely get to hang out with the cool kids, <laughs> right? I mean, like I was sad that like Vic Davis didn't even bother. He doesn't even bother submitting his games, right? Um, I mean, he maybe he probably doesn't give this much thought. But uh, the IGF is this wonderful platform for indie game developers, and it's just completely, you know, you know, on a parallel track from uh, strategy game development. You know, it, I bet like, you Bronze would have done well. Yeah, it, I mean. Yeah, you think? Well, I mean, to an extent. I mean, I mean, this this is probably one of those things that's going to get me into trouble. But you know, I think it's 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 more it's easier to make a fully featured strategy game as a one man show than it is to. I mean, an indie developer can't compete with a lot of uh, you know AAA titles in other genres. So so you have this drift toward. Um, ironic games and games with a bit of meta commentary you know lo- you know loaded into them whereas ai war is just a straight up good strategy game sure yeah we need more irony that's that's exactly we we need we need postmodern strategy games we need less irony irony sarcasm we need less irony i'll take that position we can debate that later excellent right, so well tune done. in next week for uh, episode 108 irony uh, until then, I'm Rob Zachney, and good night. Do we do we each count? Because when they do it in Game Shark, we each go yes. like in tune with each other. Five, four. That's unnecessary. Oh, okay. <laughs> They've been lying to you all these years. <laughs> they don't know what the hell they're doing over there. <laughs> all right. Three, two, one. Boom, Tom. Yeah, yeah. Wait, I don't. I, <laughs> what does this mean? <laughs> I'm kind of lost. We, I, we all. We all... Yes, and then but not at the same it. time as you. Okay, I didn't right. realize. Okay, so I wait oh, for you. Okay. No, no, I'm totally confused. When you clap, we should clap. Is that what's going on? Minus minds of strategy gaming. Okay. Oh, God.